get to Revelation. Revelation chapter 11, we left off in verse 14. Verse 14, the second woe is past. Behold, the third woe is coming quickly. So just a very quick review of where we are. Remember that the fifth trumpet was the first woe in Revelation 9, 1 through 11. And this is where demons from the bottomless pit were released on the earth. This is going to be a time like the world has never, ever seen. I mean, there isn't any sci-fi movie out there that can even come close to how horrible conditions are going to be on the earth at this time. And then we have the sixth trumpet, which is <coughs> the second woe, Revelation 9, 13 to 21. This is where the four bound angels at the river Euphrates are loose. 200 million demon army comes from the east. My inclination is to think that these are possibly demon-possessed people. Uh, they're obviously coming from the east, but they're obviously demonically inspired, demonically motivated, or whatever. Uh, the way they're described is just supernatural. So it's going to be a supernatural army. I mean, they're going to be riding horses that have heads like lions. So very strange. Now we come to the seventh trumpet, which picks up here in Revelation eleven fifteen. This is the third woe. It's a woe for the earth, but it's a joy for heaven because it begins with a victory proclamation. But before we get into that, I want to ask a question that I think we need to ask ourselves when we study the book of Revelation. Why is this book important for us? Why is it important for us to look at this book? It's, it's, it's all stuff that's in the future. We're not going to be here. <coughs> so <coughs> what is the real value of looking at it? Sorry? To warn unbelievers. To warn unbelievers, to motivate us to witness for sure. Yeah. Um, I, I want to just make a quick uh, sort of a, a snapshot idea by turning back to the book of Jude. <clears throat> by the way, since I mentioned the book of Jude, the upcoming conferences in late or in early October and then early November, Pennsylvania, which we do every year, is going to be the early October. Uh, the themes uh, for those conferences have been set, and the theme for the Pennsylvania conference will be the book of Jude. And it's going to be the essential elements of spiritual warfare. That's going to be the theme. Arizona conference, which is going to be first weekend in November, is going to be the book of James. We're going to cover the whole book of James, and we're going to look at the disciplines of discipleship. So James is going to be a real kind of rattle your cage, uh, challenge us. I'm, I'm already into the study of these two books, and I am being greatly challenged uh, by looking at them, you know, in light of what we're going to be studying and teaching. So that's uh, a little heads up on what's coming in the future. In the book of Jude, which you'll remember is about what? It's the theme is contending for the faith. James te uh, Jude tells us that he was going to write about our common salvation. He was basically going to do a book on 
how we gain eternal life, that, you know, whatever is related to uh, the provisions of our eternal life. But the Holy Spirit compelled him to change course, and instead of writing about salvation, he was compelled to write about the need to contend for the faith. And so we're going to look at elements of spiritual warfare. But there's something very interesting about the book of Jude. If you were going to write to a group of believers and you were going to <coughs> excuse me, talk to them about how to wage spiritual warfare, wouldn't you think that the book would be full of commands? There are five commands in the whole book. The first one of those commands is the one that I want you to look at. I'll let you search out the others, and it's found in verse 14. Jude verse 14, Now Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied about these men also, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his saints to execute judgment on all, to convict all who are ungodly, among them of all their ungodly deeds which they have committed in an ungodly way, and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. You know what the command is? Behold. Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his saints. I think this verse summarizes why it's important for us to study Revelation. Because we need to keep our eyes, while we're in this world, while we're going through the struggles that we're going through, while we see the corruption, and as the movie The Sound of Freedom shows, and by the way, it doesn't show a half of it. I have known about this kind of stuff going on for over 30 years. I've tried to warn people of it going on. Most people don't even want to hear it. But I can tell you from my personal experience that what's going on is 10 times worse than the movie revealed. It's horrendous what's being done. But this is what we have to keep in mind. In the darkness and the difficulty and the danger of the times that we live in, Christ is coming back. And the victory has already been won. The victory was won at the cross. All the battle of Armageddon is, is a mopping up operation. It's like wrapping up the battle. So the fact that Jude tells us we need to behold, we need to look on something steadily. We need to consider it. We need to weigh the reality of it. We need to bear in mind. I thought it was interesting. Nan and I were listening to an interview with Tim Ballard um, as we were coming down here. And one of the things he said that was life changing for him was when his wife told him to consider as he was looking at two possible courses, staying as a government agent, having a safe and secure job, having a pension, having all kinds of security, or taking a very dark and dangerous path in rescuing these kids. And his wife said to him, as he looked at him, he said, this path is dark and dismal, and this path looks bright and hopeful. She said, all right, close your eyes and consider this. One day you're going to stand before the Lord. When he asked you, what did you do that I wanted you to do? Which of those two, those two paths is going to give you the greater confidence and assurance? 
And he said it totally changed his thinking, changed his perspective, changed his whole life. Because he wanted to be able to stand before the Lord and say, I took the dangerous path, but I did it because I believe it was your will. And I did it because I believed it was necessary to do to rescue these kids. And that path became the bright path. And the other path, which was just the path of ease and comfort to him, became the dark path. When you and I look at Scripture and we respond to what Jude commands us to do here and we look, Christ is coming back and he's coming back in victory and we're going to stand before him. And as we look at the book of Revelation and we consider how difficult things are going to be on this earth, how important is it that right now we are doing everything we can to pray for the salvation of people that we know, to witness to people that we know are without Christ, to be a light just in the way we live our lives, it's going to be very, very important. So I just throw that out to you as a reason why we study the book of Revelation before we head into the seventh woe, which I point out again is a woe to the earth, but it is a cause of celebration in heaven. So we have, in verse 15, the seventh, saint, uh, seventh angel is sounding. And there were, sorry, what page? Yeah. I am on page 46, the seventh trumpet. Seventh angel sounded, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ and he shall reign forever and ever. So with the seventh trumpet, what we notice in verses 15 through 19 are three things, and these are not in your notes. If you have a pen, you might want to jot them in the margin there. First of all, we have a proclamation. In verse 15, it's a victory proclamation. That's the very first thing that happens. It is, as I said earlier, cause for rejoicing in heaven, cause for woe on the earth. The second thing we have is a celebration. There's going to be a celebration in heaven, and that's in verses 16 to 18. And then the third thing that we see is a revelation, and the revelation is in verse 19. It's important to remember if we just turn back a little bit to Revelation 11 and verse 10. Those who dwell on the earth will rejoice when the two witnesses are slain. This is the only time the word rejoicing is related to earth in this entire book. The only cause for rejoicing is the martyrdom of the two witnesses. But we see rejoicing in heaven over and over and over again. We've seen it all the way from chapter 4, now coming into this particular passage. So we see the proclamation, the kingdoms of the world have become the kingdoms of Christ. The celebration, verse 16 to 18, the 24 elders, and we saw that these represent uh, the overcomers uh, of the church, uh, their representative the 24 elders who sat before God on their thrones fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, We give you thanks, O Lord God Almighty, the one who is and who was and who is to come. This, of course, speaks of the eternal nature of God. 
because you have taken your great power and reigned. The nations were angry, and your wrath has come. This is a summary of Psalm chapter 2. You remember, why do the nations rage and the people imagine a vain thing? It says, the time of the dead that they should be judged, and that you should reward your servants, the prophets and the saints, and those who fear your name, small and great, and should destroy those who destroy the earth. So essentially there's this celebration as the crowds in heaven are basically singing this song of praise to God uh, that God has taken the authority and now is reigning. You know, one of the things that I ask myself many times is why in the world is God waiting so long? Especially when you see things like the sound of freedom. Why doesn't God do something? He wants not well, to perish. Sorry? He doesn't want any to perish. The scriptures tell us that God is not willing that any should perish, that his delay means the salvation of some. As long as there are those who are willing to respond to the gospel message, receive the gift of eternal life, God delays. He allows evil to run its course. Evil always, by the way, brings its own judgment. You know, we ask the question, why does God allow the evil to prosper? Well, really, they only prosper for a while. Any victory of Satan or his servants is always temporary. It's always going to end up evaporating and resulting in judgment. So God is far wiser than we are and far more compassionate than we are. And we just have to trust him and know that he is allowing things to go the way that they go uh, in his wisdom. So the proclamation leads to a celebration. You have uh, several references that you can use there in your notes. And then finally, a revelation. The temple of God is opened in verse 19. The temple of God is opened in heaven and the ark of his covenant was seen in the temple. You know, it would have saved Indiana Jones a lot of trouble if, if he had just realized that what he was pursuing was really just a facsimile. The real ark is the ark in heaven. And you'll remember, by the way, that when Moses built the tabernacle, he was told to build the tabernacle according to the copy of the tabernacle in heaven. And you can get references for that if you want to jot those down here. Hebrews 8, 5. Hebrews 9, 23 and 24. And both of those, of course, refer back to Exodus 25, 40, where God told Moses, make sure that the tabernacle you build is according to the copy of the things that you saw in heaven. So the real temple, the real tabernacle is in heaven, and it's now demonstrated here as the temple of God is open and the Ark of His Covenant. And what was so important about the Ark of the Covenant? Do you remember what the Ark was like? They did a pretty good job portraying it in Indiana Jones. I'm not much of an artist, but I'll do my best. So it's a, basically a box. What's it made out of? Acacia wood. Made of wood, overlaid with gold. Gold. Wood is a picture of the humanity of Christ. 
Gold is a picture of the deity of Christ. And on top, you have the throne, which is the mercy seat. And then on each side, you have kneeling down with their wings covering the ark to cherubim. Remember that the cherubim are the mightiest of the angels. Not all angels are alike. There are different races, if you want to call them that, of angels, different ranks of angels. The cherubim are always seen as the guardians of the throne room of God. And here is the mercy seat. Inside the ark, you'll remember this from Hebrews 9, 1 to 5, were three things. So you have number one. Altar Aaron's, no. Aaron's rod. Aaron's rod. Manna. Manna. Aaron's rod. You have a bowl of manna. And the tablets. The broken tablets. What are these three things representative of? Why would God put these three things in the ark as a memorial? The bread is the, the manna is the bread of life, the constant provision. Okay. I would suggest this. They represent the sins of mankind. Remember Aaron's rod? Why did it bud? Because Korah and his friends, Dathan and Abiram, led a rebellion against Aaron, which was a rebellion against the authority of God. They were elevating themselves in pride, and therefore Aaron's rod is a picture of mental sins. What about the manna? The people complained about the food that they had, and so God sent them miraculous food, bread from heaven. When they got the bread from heaven, what did they do? They complained. Picture of sins of the tongue. Then we have the broken tables. You remember Moses went up on the mountain. God inscribed the law with his finger. Moses came down the mountain, and what was going on? They were rebelling. They were worshiping idols and involved in an orgy. That's basically what was going on. And so we have sins of the heart, sins of the flesh. This is where it gets interesting. Who does the ark picture? Christ. Pictures Christ. And when the high priest came into the Holy of Holies once a year, when was it? Day of Atonement. He came in with the blood of a sacrifice which he offered both for himself and for the people. And he was to take the blood and put it where? 
right there. Now, by two cherubs. We know that the cherubs reflect the character of God. Uh, you'll remember in the book of Ezekiel and then earlier in the book of Revelation, we saw that around the throne of God are how many cherubs? Four. Right? Do you remember what their faces looked like? They had eyes everywhere. They had eyes everywhere, which is a, a symbol eagle, of a omniscience. So you have... Eagle, lion, man. And a lion, an eagle, a man, and an ox. And an ox. Amazing. Let's take the lion first. What is a lion a symbol of? Strength. Gospel of Matthew. Lion of the tribe of Judah. The lion of the tribe of Judah. That's the gospel of Matthew. What is the ox the symbol of? Strength. Servant. Servant. Mark. Gospel of Mark. Christ is emphasized all the way through the Gospel of Mark as the servant. In fact, the key word in the Gospel of Mark is... Immediately. Ephthus. Immediately. Which is a word used of an obedient servant. Then we have the face of a man. Gospel of Luke. Son of man. Emphasis on his humanity. And then we have the eagle. And the eagle is a symbol of deity. So the cherubs reflect the essence of God. If we were to pick two areas of God's essence that these two cherubs would represent, what would you think they might be? Judgment. Let's say righteousness and justice. Why? Because we're told in the Psalms, what is it, Psalm 97? Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. What do righteousness and justice put together? What the righteousness of God demands, the justice of God supplies, so they really work together. They're two sides of the same coin. When you put the two of them together, what do you have? Holiness. So here we have symbols of God's holiness looking down into the ark, which is filled with the sins of man, and what comes between the holiness of God and the sins of man? The blood of the sacrifice. Beautiful, beautiful picture of our salvation. So when John tells us here that the tabernacle or the temple of God was open in heaven and the ark of his covenant. Remember the covenant's an everlasting covenant. It's a covenant of grace. It's the covenant of salvation through faith in Christ. The ark of the covenant was seen <coughs> in his temple. And then we have lightnings and noises, thunderings, earthquake, great hail. It's very interesting in verse 19, you have every human sensory faculty involved. You have sight, you have sound, you have, well, we don't have taste, I suppose, but experience, everything is going on here, which is very interesting because Jesus sometimes 
captivated his listeners by dealing with our human senses. Our human senses are given to us by God. Think about the upper room. Think about Jesus' lessons. Take away for the moment what he taught and think about what he did. He humbled himself to the lowliest. He humbled himself and washed their feet. And then what did he do? As he spoke to them, he broke the bread. He gave them the wine. He was essentially captivating every human faculty. They were hearing the message. They were seeing his actions. They were receiving the bread and the cup. They were tasting it. They were feeling it. And essentially he captivated. And I think it's very important for us to understand this because God's plan involves us as whole people. You know, he doesn't, when we become Christians, we don't separate our spiritual side from the real us. The spiritual side has become the real us, and now all of our sensory faculties are to be sanctified for his purpose. And so what we hear, what we see, what we handle, even as the group gathers together here, you know, we had the opportunity to eat with the people that we were with down in that place. And the scripture always gives a sense of sanctity and a sense of holiness to a meal shared by believers. What was it the early church did as we read in Acts chapter 4? They met together and they gathered around the apostles' teaching and the breaking of bread and prayer. What an amazing picture. Because the breaking of the bread in the early church always included the celebration of the Lord's table. How long has it been since we celebrated the Lord's table here? We need to do that again. That would be a good thing for us maybe next week. Celebrate the Lord's table. It's a very important thing. I don't think we realize how important it is. Once again, what did Jesus say? He points us exactly where Jude pointed us at the beginning of the class. As often as you eat the bread and drink the cup, you show the Lord's death. You're looking back until he's coming back. And I think that the emphasis not just in those two passages, but over and over and over again, is that God wants us to keep in mind the victory of the cross and what it's leading to. And that will be the victorious return of Christ. And when Jude said the Lord returns with 10,000s of his saints, guess what? We're going to be there. You know, I told you we went out to a coffee farm and we actually went out on horseback. This was quite interesting, quite fun, just to see a little bit of how rural life uh, is in those places. Um, we're going to come back on horseback. We're going to be riding white horses. And it's going to be a victorious, final victory uh, over the elements of the enemy. 
All right, so that brings us <coughs> to chapter 12, and we get down to some serious identification. The identities that we're going to look at are the woman, the dragon, and the child. Question. Just before you go on, could I, how much, like what you described with the mercy seat and everything, how much of that would the priests and the people have understood? Would they have understood all it that? It depends on how receptive they were to the truth. There were priests who understood it. In fact, I was just reading in the passage, slips my mind, <clears throat> the purpose of the priest was not just to offer sacrifices. That's how we generally picture them. The priests were the Bible teachers of the ancient world. Uh, and it was the responsibility of the priests in coming down from Moses, he would have explained all of this very clearly. They would have understood that this is all looking forward. You know, when Jesus said, Abraham saw my day, Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it, and he was glad. Uh, Abraham obviously saw into the offering of Isaac on Mount Moriah. The whole story played out. And as Moses would have instructed the priests, and the priests would have passed it down, there would have always been, and Scripture reminds us of this quite often, there has always been a faithful remnant. You know, God had to remind Elijah of this. There has always been a faithful remnant. We look back and we look at what we call the Dark Ages. And the truth is that during the Dark Ages were some of the finest people in church history. We don't know about them because so many of them have not been written about or not recorded uh, historically. But if we dig deep enough, we find out that there were groups from the time of Paul all the way through that remained faithful, that remained true, just like reading the seven churches in Revelation 2 and 3. You know, you have Smyrna and you have Philadelphia. The majority are going corrupt. Two of them are becoming more and more refined and purified by the trials that they're going through. And that's really... As a matter of fact, that's what the book of James is talking about. Count it all joy when you fall into various trials. Why? Because you know that your trials are producing endurance. And endurance is producing proven character. And not only that, but your trials give you an opportunity to pray for wisdom. And God has promised that if you pray for wisdom and pray in faith, he will give it. And that's part of the adventure of living the whole Christian life. You know, just like going the way we go, we never know what God has planned. But he always surprises us. And granted, sometimes there are surprises we don't like very much, difficulties and obstacles and hurdles. But they really fade into insignificance when we look at them in light of how he orchestrates the opportunity to present the gospel to unbelievers, to share the word with believers who have very little opportunity to learn, and again, maybe not even possession of a Bible, uh, to be able to minister to those people is something that is precious beyond any price that you could put on it. So, yeah, they would have they would have understood and they would have instructed. They 
they should have been gathering with the people <coughs> and explaining every step. Now, obviously, they wouldn't have understood it from a New Testament perspective because the whole principle of progressive revelation, uh, you can't know things before they're revealed. They would have known what was revealed to them, and that is they would have started, a good priest would have started right in Genesis 3. Seed of the woman is going to crush the head of the serpent. By the way, I was going to give this to you. You want me to take a few extra minutes? I was going to give this to you at the beginning, and I forgot. Talking about the priest reminded me of it. They would have been able to tell the people, we are engaged in a great spiritual conflict. <coughs> and this spiritual conflict involves angelic forces, both those that are with God and those that are with Lucifer. And we are caught in the middle. And the hope, as we look forward down through the ages of history, is that the seed of the woman is coming and the seed of the woman is going to bring our redemption. Uh, getting back to Nan's question before I get into this, and I've got eight points I'm going to give you quickly and then I'm going to wrap it up. Um, think about Job. Job likely lived prior to Abraham. Job was a Gentile. Job makes a statement in Job 19.27, I know that my Redeemer lives and that he will stand on the earth in the latter day, and though worms destroy my flesh, yet in my body I will see God. When you think of the theology that is wrapped up in that simple statement, it's absolutely amazing. Number one, he knew that his Redeemer was eternal. I know that he's living now. I know he's going to stand on the earth at the latter day. I know my Redeemer lives. I know he's coming. He's, he's going to stand on the earth, so he's looking forward to the coming of the Savior. And the Savior he identifies as my Redeemer, so he understood that there was a work of redemption that was going to be done. He knew he was going to die. The worms are going to destroy my body. I'm going to die and go into the grave and decay and so on and so forth. <clears throat> Yet in my body I will see God. So there he includes both the idea of his physical bodily resurrection and the fact that the Redeemer he's talking about is God in human flesh. you got the Gospels. The, the basic theme of the Gospels is right there in the statement of the earliest book in the Old Testament. So there would have been no excuse. And he didn't have half the revelation that the priests of Israel had. So... There would have been no excuse for them not knowing all those things. To the eight points I want to give you. <coughs> Excuse me. I think it's important that we realize that we are involved in a spiritual war. An invisible war. Uh, I refer to it as the angelic conflict. Some people call it the, the, the invisible war. Spiritual war, however you want to look at it. I want to give you eight points that really cover from the beginning to the end. So here they are. Number one, Lucifer's rebellion. It all began with Lucifer's rebellion. And this took place or is recorded in Isaiah 14, 12 to 15, Ezekiel 28, 12 to 19. If I go too fast for you. What was Isaiah? 
Okay, Isaiah 14, 12 to 15. Ezekiel 28, 12 to 19. So after Lucifer's rebellion, we don't know when that occurred. But we do know that at some point after that rebellion, he infiltrated the human race. So the next step is infiltration. This is where he entered into the garden. You have a perfect garden. You have two perfect people. You have perfect environment. And he invades and infiltrates that perfect environment. Genesis 3, 1 to 8. And this, of course, results in the temptation and the fall of Adam and Eve into sin. The next stage in the conflict is that God declares war. And this is found in Genesis 3.15. The seed of the woman is going to crush the head of the serpent. Your seed are going to be against her seed. But her seed is going to crush your head. So her seed includes, first of all, Christ himself, and then believers all down through the ages. We are all included in that. We'll see that, by the way, when we get into chapter 12. The seed of the woman. Not only, by the way, is war declared, but victory is prophesied. It will end in victory of the Redeemer. The fourth stage of the conflict is Israel's torment. We're going to see this in Revelation 12, 1 through 6. The woman who is in travail. The word that's used there for travail or trouble is a word that actually means torment. And we're going to see Israel's torment, which includes the whole uh, of her history in the Old Testament. Why was Israel so attacked by Satan? Because he knew that Israel was going to bring the Savior into the world that was going to defeat him. And if he could destroy the nation, he could win the conflict. And so Israel suffers. Stage five of the conflict, reserve forces are brought in. This is the church. Israel had so corrupted their way that Israel is sidelined on the course of history. And with the day of Pentecost, we have new, fresh forces brought forward. And that is the church. 2 Corinthians 10, 3 through 6. Though we walk in the flesh, we don't war against the flesh. The weapons of our warfare are mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. That is a summary, if you will, of our conflict and our weaponry. Six, we have the issue of weapons to these reserve forces in Ephesians 6, 10 through 18. Paul highlights the weapons that you and I are to use in this conflict. He mentions them in 2 Corinthians 10, but they're identified in Ephesians 6, 10 through 18. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. He goes through the whole demonic hierarchy, and then he starts listing the weapons of our warfare, and it begins with the belt of truth. We start with learning the Bible. And from the belt of truth, we move on to the breastplate of righteousness, which, of course, is the imputed righteousness of Christ. And we go to the sandals, which are the sandals of service. And then we have the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, and the sword of the Spirit. 
and all of them lead to prayer. Praying always with all prayer and supplication. That's our weaponry. Which leads us to stage seven. God brings forth Israel's special forces. We play our part through the church age, and then the rapture takes place. And in Revelation 7, 1 to 8, we have 144,000 Israeli special forces, spiritual warriors brought onto the scene of history. And then, of course, this will also include the two witnesses that we've just seen in Revelation 11, 1 to 10. And then, of course, the eighth and last point is the final victory, which we actually just read about in Revelation 11, 19. We see it in Revelation 12, 10 through 12. It comes up again. This is, it's pretty important because it's repeated over and over in Revelation. Comes up again in Revelation 14, 14 to 20. And then, of course, the final portrayal, Revelation 19, 11 through 16. What you basically have in those eight points is from the fall of Lucifer at some point in unrecorded ancient history to the victory of Christ at the second coming of Christ at the end of the book of Revelation. That pretty much wraps up history, and it also explains something else. Why does life hurt? Why do we lose? Why do we suffer? Why are we attacked? Why are we maligned? Why do friends turn on us? Why does family hate us? Did you ever stop and think that every single bad thing that ever happened to you was somehow related to this spiritual war that's raging behind the scenes? It kind of puts it in a whole new light. If instead of getting mad at that person or reacting at what someone has said or what someone has done, or I have a horrible temper, I confess to you, I get angry and frustrated. But you know what? The minute I just recall to my mind, this is part of the spiritual war. And how I respond to this is much more important than whether I solve the problem or make it go away. This is a part of a spiritual war and we have to meet the trials and the pressures. Believe me, when we were going through the, the travel, I have never in 30 years of international travel, I have never had a trip like the one we just came through. It was a whole new experience for me. Uh, and I was about ready to choke someone out, I just have to tell you. I was the one closest to her. <laughs> and she was, she was the closest one, but she wasn't the one causing the problem. No, in all honesty, if I didn't have Nan along, I don't know what would happen. The minute things go wrong, she is immediately, like, we're standing there waiting at our gate. We've already been delayed three hours. Now they say, oh, your flight's canceled. Well, you know what happens. Everybody floods to the, what do they call it, the... The what? Service desk. Service desk. It's not a service desk, believe me. It's a chaos desk. There was a line a hundred yards long at the service desk, and it's midnight. It's midnight, and this line is going to take three hours at least 
to get through, which is why we finally split and just said, let's go get a room and, and get horizontal for a few minutes. Um, but you know what, Nanda, she's immediately on her phone. She's on it. She's looking at possibilities. She's checking out what can be done. She's evaluating, can we go here? Can we go there? And I would be standing there dumbfounded saying, <laughs> I don't even know what to do. I don't even know what to do. So she is a phenomenal asset. I don't know what I'd do without her. All right, we're going to leave it there. Uh, thanks for your attention and thanks for your prayers in the recent journey. And uh, we will see you next week. We're going to be Who's here. Number three. We're going to be here for a while. What was that? Number three. Number three on the list I just gave you. Okay. Sorry. It was war is declared. Genesis three fifteen. And two was infiltration. Two was infiltration. This is okay. Satan entering into the garden. Genesis three. Okay. I seven. Number seven. Israel's special forces. Revelation seven eight one through eight. And Revelation 11, 1 to 10. All good? All right, let's pray. Heavenly Father, how thankful we are for your word, for your grace, for the fact that we have the Spirit indwelling us to give us wisdom and guidance, for the protection that we have around us, knowing that we live in a battlefield knowing that we have a hostile enemy, and yet knowing, Father, that you have delivered us time without number. We couldn't count, we can't even comprehend the special protection that we're under because we are your children. So, Father, we are thankful. Uh, we pray for those that we have been with recently that we had opportunity to encourage, to minister to. And, Father, we pray that you will pour out your rich blessings on them. Every day they live is harder than the worst day that we have. Mm -hmm. So Father, lift, strengthen, and encourage them in their faith. Help them to grow in grace and truth. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Mm -hmm.